You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, Ben Eagle. To listen to previous episodes, visit thinkingcountry.com or find the podcast on iTunes by searching for Meet the Farmers. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Meet the Farmers, which is a bit out of the ordinary this time. Firstly, because I feel incredibly lazy and for once... I'm actually, I'm doing this from home. Um, and secondly, I'm not talking to a farmer, but to a grain merchant. Norfolk-based Andrew Dewing is chief executive of Dewing Grain, a locally focused grain merchant for Norfolk and Suffolk farmers. He's also a fellow podcaster and presents the Dewing Grain podcast, which you can find on iTunes, on Stitcher and at dewinggrain.co.uk forward slash podcast. Andrew, thank you for coming all this way. You're based in Aylsham in Norfolk. Have you uh, have you ever been to this part of the world? I have. I, I once in my youth had an interview in Manningtree in the yeah. old station house for a company called Kenneth Wilson. Okay. And um, that would have been 1984, and I was I was trying to achieve a company car for the first time, so I applied for a job being a, a, a rep for this firm. And it was the last interview... And it was a classic agricultural-style interview back in the 80s. And I sat in front of the, uh, the, the chap who was a complete nutter who was interviewing me, and he said, uh, <laughs> you do realise this, what this room was used for back in the day? And I said, no, I, I have no idea. Oh, it's a knocking shop, he said. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, was, well I, the thing, yes, I've been, I've been down here, and, and um, I, I visited Frinton once, but other than that... Everyone uh, has... Yeah. For some reason. Well, it's supposed to be the driest part of the country, isn't it? It is. Your, yeah, your neighbour, Guy, Guy Smith. Guy Smith famously, yeah, famously claims, which, uh, and he has the Guinness Book, yeah, Guinness World Record to be the driest farm in the country. Yes, yeah, Nozith is yeah, just, just a few miles down the road from here. And the irony is. <laughs> It's raining. I mean, it, is, it does happen to be pouring with rain today, but it's, it's, it's the first we've had in a while, I must say. Yeah. Um, so, so your podcast is all about demystifying the grain market, really, um, and the grain trading process. Definitely, that, that's the kind of quest or the mission that we have as a, as a business. I, I think that grain trading is overcomplicated by uh, organisations that it kind of suits them to overcomplicate it. If you deal in a bespoke manner with a firm that can make a decision quickly, the analogy is a speedboat versus a super tanker. And if you've sold everything and the market suddenly is obviously going to go up because of a terrible drought in America where they're planting their maize or, or all of the reasons in the past that have made the market go up. If you study history and you see this is obvious, it's going to go up. Instead of kicking the cat, our argument is... Trade out of that position yeah. with someone who can talk you through it and then resell it later on. And it isn't complicated. So that our mission is that. And the kind of submission <laughs> of the podcast has become trying to encourage farmers to be more confident about diversifying. We've got some phenomenally successful farmers who've who've moved into different fields and we've had we've interviewed a, a guy who got into building and there's, there's several more we're going to be bringing on track who've done things um there's a i'll correct your norfolk suffolk well, i've got two guys in essex okay oh, gee. Brilliant. and uh, one of them um angus crowther is is a is a wine grower we'll be coming on and interviewing him about that but the dynamic of actually doing something different and being brave enough to and stepping out there 
one or two farmers who are perhaps a little bit shy need just a bit more encouragement to think, well, actually, lots of other people have done this. Maybe we can. And I, I think that's one of our objectives as well. We talk quite a lot on this podcast about accessibility, um, specifically mostly in farming and, 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 and traditional agriculture, as, as you would see, uh, as, as you probably see it. Um, but grain trading, uh, how, how do you get into grain trading um, and how did you get into grain trading? At 16 years old, when I left school, I went to a rubbish school. I didn't have, I've never had any contacts from my school to give me any legs up or help in, in my career. In my little head, I was going to be a professional footballer. I wasn't good enough. I was quite good. I, I was reasonably good. Got paid a little money for doing it for, for a little while. But largely, I wasn't good enough. The realisation of that is a bit of a shocker, when yeah. you, you know. Um, and I'd got a job just before I left school. I went for an interview uh, because the, uh, I think my, my, my sister went to Young Farmers with a guy who said, oh, there might be a job coming up there. And I'd done nothing about it. And it was June in classic, classic Andrew doing style. I just <laughs> pr- procrastinated and winged it. Got to June, about to leave school. And my mother said, you know, what are you going to do? Go to, go to college or are you going to go to get a job? Yeah. So I didn't really know. And, I, and, and the same day, my sister, oh, there's a, there might be a job there. So I picked up the phone and phoned them up and said, have you got any jobs? No, actually, I wrote a letter, which is even more scary. Very than the Indeed, yeah. And, and I got a response. They said, right, you can come on the, uh, on the 2nd of July um, for an interview. And I said, OK. Uh, off I went the 2nd of July and I had a tie on a horrid jacket that made me look you know, 1950s boy, combed my hair. And, and I sat in there and I went to this interview and this bloke asked me a load of questions. And I'd not, no prep, just sat there. And um, I was a bit of a motorbike lad, you know, a little moped lad actually at the time. And, and, and as I said, I'd gone to a rubbish school and didn't really have any interview uh, experience or even thought about it. And he said, have you got any questions? And I said, yes, have I got the job or not? <laughs> because I need to know because I'm going to apply for college. <laughs> oh, well, you aren't supposed to ask that, he said. I said, well, I have. Uh, and he went, mm, on the basis of that, yes. I said, well, when do you want me to start? He said, well, can you start tomorrow? I went, yes. So 3rd of July, 1978, I had a job. So one interview, got the job. And you've been in the industry ever since? The industry, if you get a job in an industry, or be it anything, I believe that... There is something interesting in that industry. Mm. And I, I went into... I remember going into it as a documentation clerk, and it was all done by hand in those days. No computers at all. And there were, so if you added stuff up on an Olivetti hand machine, which you had to punch numbers in and crunch things, it's really old-fashioned. <laughs> and there's a load of old guys in the room doing that job, and they've been doing that job all their lives. And I looked at them and thought, I ain't going to do this. No way. And there was an old boy called Jerry Bruce in the corner and he was getting near retirement and he'd been a documentation clerk for 50 years. And he said, soon be Friday, five o'clock, boy. Which meant he couldn't wait to get out the door for the weekend and that's how he, he looked forward to Friday at five o'clock. Yeah. I thought, wow, this is... So, but they were all glass partitions in this office and behind me was the grain trading room. They were really fun. They were doing all sorts of stupid stuff going to the pub all the time, playing cricket in the office, messing around, larking about, say, being outrageous, really, I don't know. It, it, it just, I thought, well, if I'm going to be in this place, I want to be in there is where I want it to be. Absolutely. And so it, it, it started there, 
and like any job, once you start doing something, it becomes interesting. I think it should become, and you then find out everything about the whole process. And uh, I think the biggest advantage I had was the fact that I admired these guys who were trading and I liked the way they could pick up a sample of grain and just look at it and say that's good or that's bad. I wanted to be the best at that and I kind of angled myself to do the jobs that assisted the people that did that. So I became probably as good as anybody in that office for physically being able to just look at grain and go yes or no. And that appealed to me. And it kind of, I don't know, I got the bug and it goes on from there. So what advice would you give to someone who is perhaps interested in getting into it? Well, well, nowadays everybody comes out of university and they expect to be managing the business within three weeks of coming. I have a, I have a passionate dislike of graduate trainees <laughs> because when I was going through the process of actually physically getting samples to put into the grain bag, the graduate trainees would come out of uni and start straight in the trading office mm. And they had a kind of superiority complex, you know, the, the proper chip on the shoulder here was was watching these guys come in, earn more money, because they went to union, obviously they're far cleverer, and the reality was they didn't have the fundamental knowledge of the product. Yeah. So what I was doing was learning exactly what a 1.9 nitrogen spring barley looked like and why it wouldn't work, and a 1.4 nitrogen perfect barley and why it would work and what you could put together to make one that was acceptable as a as a as a blended sample for a 1.7 job you know some of them were too rough and ugly don't put them in the mix it that knowledge is is in the end the, the fundamentals of your job you need to understand the absolute basics down to the bare bones these guys skipped all that and came straight into the trading but when it comes down to technically arguing about a, a, a malting barley sample with a farmer what's going to happen to it if it comes into your site they didn't have the answers to those questions they'd kind of bluff it and then the, the grain would come in there'd be a hideous disaster because it was allocated to the wrong slot if you like and then they couldn't they, basically it was rejected and the farmer was incredibly angry hence the Dick Turpin reputation you've stolen my grain or whatever but it was because they didn't have fundamental real knowledge about the product if you're going to do a job, get your hands dirty. Get, get, go in and, and do a night drying in a, in a grain store. Actually do that job, where as the, as the outside ambient temperature or, or moisture uh, changes, you have to adjust the dryer. Understand the dynamic of, 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 of that. You know, farmers, oh, I dried all that grain myself. No, they didn't. They switched the dryer on and they buggered off and did something else for a long period of time, came back and found the moisture level was, was wrong of the, the sample coming out about three hours later. That's not doing the job properly. Understand that. Understand shoveling out the corners. Understand what you can shovel out and what you actually throw away. Really understand the dynamic of what you're doing when you trade grain. How and when did you start doing grain? Well, I've been in the industry since 1978, which makes me old, um, which is great. The best thing about my generation was I was the last young person that went into it. Lots and lots of people of my age didn't go into agriculture. The industry's been shrinking since the 60s, really, but 70s onwards, there's been a, a, all of the companies gradually have been either been bought or gone broke, and, and the industry's incredibly small now. So I went through 20 years of my life as a merchant 
for various mergers. I moved jobs mercenarily, you know, get more money, get a bigger car, earn yeah. more money. In 1996, I joined a company called House and Grain Marketing, which was a cooperative. They, they had no successful marketing at all. They had a cooperative store that was kind of... On a, it was it was ticking over, but it wasn't. It was very small, and it wasn't ever going to make anything. It wasn't going to justify two people working in the silo. I'd had some good fortune working for uh, my previous company, where I was part of a syndicate that won the lottery, and it enabled me to pay my mortgage off at that time. Wow. Yeah, I know, but it was it was kind of at the time. You know, <laughs> I've got a one liner I normally use at this point. But anyway, the point is that that, that money comes, money goes. Let's put it that way. It enabled me to work a lot closer to home. I was living very close to Aylesham. I, I met a guy at a social cricket game where, where we, we used to play every Thursday night. It was really not very grown-up cricket. You sort of stand there drinking beer on the pitch while you're supposed to be fielding and standing like, next to each other. Sounds like my kind of question. Two people at cover point yeah. having a chat, and yeah. then they have to argue about who's actually going to run after the ball. And uh, one of the guys, Jimmy Alston, and I was talking, and, we, and he just said, well, we need to do something at Aylesham. And I said, well, you know, I'd, I'd look at that. He said, oh, we can't afford you. I said, I've, I've just won the lottery. You probably can. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, it kind of worked from there. And um, so I, I said, Aylesham, I built up the, the business. It was successful. The farmers at that time in the 90s were having a tough time. It was very low cereal prices. There was enough troubles about. And having a grain trading business that needed to grow, it, I said, you, you, we've got to expand this. This is this, We're making money every year. It's, it's, we now need to. And, of course, farmers think you're an empire builder was the mm. phrase. And, and well, should we take on a chief executive? I said, OK, so I do all the work and someone earns more money and... No, I don't think so. Um, so we ended up merging into a company called uh, Centaur, which in turn became Openfield. But before it became Openfield, I, I became a little disenchanted with with the kind of national attitude that, that I felt was, was creeping into the trading with my customers. I'm very passionate about Norfolk and my customer base and what we do as a niche. We had a slightly different opinion, and I decided I'd like to have a go at doing it on my own. And so... I stuck out the, the local cooperative, Aylsham Grain, which was still there as a, as a separate cooperative, said, would we run their store again, which gave me a base income of, of a certain amount of money, which meant I could, you know, have so much, a thousand pound a month or whatever to, to pay some of the mortgage, um, which by now I'd got again, life had restarted. At that moment, I thought, right, I'm, I want to do it my way. I don't like how it's turning to corporate. I, I think I can do this. One life, what the hell, both feet. And I had, I had support from my wife who's allowed me to put my house on the line, our house on the line. Uh, you know, it was everything was up for grabs. It could have gone horribly wrong. Um, but she had faith and I had a blind sort of wing it mentality. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's worked out. Unless, unless something really dramatic happens, these big firms aren't going to be going anywhere. No, no, but, they're going to... They're, they're but gonna... do you think that there is room for a greater number of more local local trader firms uh, moving forward? I think there will be bespoke individuals who will be able to find a living out of trading grain or getting between the wall and the wallpaper. I don't... I think that potentially the, the major organisations could cut people completely out of the loop. You could have seed to end product. You can only come into this mill if you buy our seed, buy our fertiliser, have our agronomy, yeah. have our haulage, and have the whole package. Here's the top end price. It looks fantastically attractive, doesn't it? And I think a whole load of farmers will go, 
oh yes, and off they go in that trance-like state and sign up to it. But, you know, the, the, the hideous drought from next year that makes the market go up 70 or 80 pounds a tonne, you've just missed out on that because you signed up to something that looked good way back in September, 18 months previously. Those things will, will still happen. And so you will still need liquidity in the market. You'll still need people with it who say, no, do you know what? I've got a shed. Sell it to me. I'm going to put it in that shed. And I think the price is going to go up. And take a chance, take a view, take an informed view. Um, yeah, there is room for someone with a brain cell who can actually go, we're giving you an alternative. And it's up to the farmers to follow that dynamic, to understand that if they just cut those guys out because there's this marvellous wallpaper, <clears throat> no, not wallpaper, but, uh, you know, complete contract, you'll end up with no alternative like sugar beet. Yeah. And and uh, farmers moan like crazy about sugar beet because yeah. they're just dealing with the man. Yeah. And, yeah, we're, the independence are needed and the need will be filled. People will appear. We then come back to the dynamic of who who's in the industry, who do we, how do we find these people? If they're all being trained by the major organisations, mm. how are they going to think differently? Mm. How are they going to do it in a in a different form? My guys all came to me. One one chap had just been um, made redundant by Savills, so he had a, an, a, an agricultural background, more in the property side of things, yeah. and he was going to be interviewed by an, a competitor. And or two competitors, he had two interviews to be a rep because he had the right criteria. <clears throat> and he came, he said, I, I knew his dad, and I said, um, right, you know, what do you want to know? Because I, I knew the lad when he was when he was very young. And he said, uh, well, tell, tell me some tips about grain trading. I had a chat with him, and, and he, he ticked all of the boxes. He was really, you know, quietly spoken, played rugby, sort of, you know, nice, really nice lad. And at the end of the interview, I thought, you know what? I wasn't looking for someone, but I, I said, I'll give you a job. And if you come to work for me, I will teach you everything about grain trading. If you go and work for the other firms you're going to go and see, you're going to be just a guy who's given a story on a text, and, you, and they're gonna, you're not going to get in-depth enough to get up that tree quick enough. If you work for me, you will know everything I know. I will give it all to you as a, uh, your daily bread and you will learn how to trade futures, and you'll be allowed to trade futures. All these other guys can't do that. You can make decisions. So I'll tell you, okay, I'll, I'll go and see these other people. And he did the two interviews. They offered him more money. They offered him a car. And he came back and worked for me. Yeah. When you, you employ someone, you employ someone not when you need someone. If you see a really good person walking past the door, and you meet them, and you think they're great, and you haven't got space for them, if they're really good people, take them on. And I've done that, and I've had some failures, but I've got more successes. My team is made up of people that I wasn't looking for, <laughs> and they're in my office, and they're great. Um, because they they fitted a kind of uh, a mindset. And I think that's it. We need people who think and a little bit of a rebellion against corporateness. Yeah, and I think, I think that goes for... Certainly in farming, I think uh, with what, I, what I would love to see is a lot more people. I'm a great believer in diversity and, and people bringing skills from other, other sectors. Um, and I, I, I hope that that's where we'll see a bit more diversity moving forward as well. I want to talk about grain storage because mm. you have is it 10, 10 different sites. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Tell me more about that. Okay. Um, everybody 
in the industry except for the, the, the biggest firm pretty well have not bothered to invest in storage in, in East Anglia. And we trade malting barley and we live in an area that's a surplus area. So we trade with a mindset of a surplus area. The other companies that we're trading against, other than the other small merchants, who, who, who've more shirt-tailed to a bigger firm and just done a supply job for them, they don't particularly want to invest in infrastructure. We've invested in storage. We've invested in... Um, we actually got together a group of farms to create uh, year grain, which is an achievement. We tried to make a cooperative happen, but you couldn't get every farmer to... Like Corporal Jones in the, in the parade, you know that that kind of you know everyone saw and then his foot comes down. So all the checks weren't coming in at the same time, and it was just going to it was too much of a committee. So a small group of us put together a plan. We got some investors to buy the site. Really quite ballsy that all of the people involved with it, and then we we created a package and said, "Come in, buy storage as a collective," and it's it's been successful. So that that's our probably our greatest achievement, and it's still growing that that site. Um, but storage is a cost, is a total responsibility. Yeah. Um, it, it's expensive because you have to train your staff and you have to do the job properly. If you take in malting barley and you dry it at too high a temperature you kill all the germination so you've paid your farmer a full malting barley price and you've just killed it and it's turned into feed so lots of people have had bad experience with that you have to be totally professional in your attitude to storage health and safety and training of staff and and actually taking responsibility actually going there and saying are you doing that properly what's you know it's really i've got an amazing set of people running my grain stores now um but it has you know, it's been a, a journey of people really understanding every minute detail of that. Um, and and we, as a, as a business, rely upon accuracy on, on if we're blending stuff or if we are um, drying stuff to a certain spec and keeping it and getting the temperatures down, the complexity in that is, is, is immense. But I think, as we go into the future, it's going to be the thing that makes us able to survive what comes next. We are a niche market provider of malting barley the only people who can take malting barley are molsters frontier in our area um and us and as far as it goes our doors are open every day of the week pretty well seven till seven or longer on harvesting days and farmers nowadays have have a much much swifter process they've got contractors if they can not touch the floor with it all the better so we provide a service that goes in you come and thankfully, the other guys, the bigger organisations, have to have bookings and have to have times and have to have... And when you have bookings and times, people get stuck behind an accident, things break down, yeah. you miss your booking, you can't have one until next Wednesday. And I think that the, the, it's, it's kind of still being rural enough, still being on the floor enough and still being open on a Saturday and all of the really grubby agricultural type things of running a store... That's made a massive difference to our future. We're going to get people, they bring their malting barley in without necessarily bringing a sample in. They trust us, which is, we were discussing before we turned the microphone on about what a collective of merchants was. Yeah, yeah. And it's a faith of merchants, which is to some people ironic, bearing in mind <laughs> Turpin. The trust aspect is the biggest issue in grain trading. If you break trust, people don't come back. 
The same customers come back every single year, all of your working life, if you look after them properly. They trust you. So therefore, take the mentality of the biggest and most prized thing is trust. Bring that malting barley in. Tell them what it exactly is, you know, and or try your absolute hardest to make it into something good if it's not. So we've invested in screens, we've invested in gravity separators, we've invested in colour sorters, we, we, you name it. We can turn a sow's ear into a silk purse and we share it with our farmers. By that dynamic, we're gaining customer uh, input or commitment when other people are losing it. And in any harvest, we can cope with their stuff, be it 11% moisture like last year or 27% moisture. Bring it in, boys. We will help you. We will make it happen easily and seamlessly. So it's a service aspect, trust, mm. which means the, the, the decision to invest was probably the right one. Uh, you start your podcast <coughs> um, with you sticking your neck out um, and giving your thoughts on where the grain market will be in that particular week, um, which is a very brave thing to do. Uh, what, what, what are you generally basing that on? My, my opinion. Uh, my opinion comes from somewhere deep inside this big fat <laughs> belly. And, uh, I mean, the, the, you know the phrase, sing when you're winning. Uh, we, in August, launched the podcast and said, sell sell new crop especially because we're heading at Bre- heading into Brexit with a potentially strong currency yep. or yeah. a weak currency and tariffs. And here we are, fifteen pounds lower in price. So I can I can dance, can't I? Let's face it, I'm I'm to the I, I have been saying consistently all the way through at this moment, at this precise moment in early February, we're winning. Um, and when I change my view I will ch- change my view. I mean, it, I don't know what it's going to be at this precise second. I think it's it's tired of going down. I'm, you know, you you have a feeling. You have a feeling about this industry, yeah. and the only way you can prove your feeling to be wrong is when it starts costing you money. So, as a trader, you have a what they call a position. So, I either buy too much and don't sell it because I think it's going up, or I sell more than I've bought because you can sell ahead, um, and I and I wait for it to come down to then buy a tim. The, and I absolutely passionately believe in this modern world of we don't take risks, we don't have a position. It makes all of the traders numbskulls because if you are short, like this morning, I think the market's creeping up a jelly bit this morning, we're, we're short. Every penny that's gone up this morning is losing us money, technically. There's nothing quite focuses your mind on why is that happening than when it costs you money. Mm. So it's that it's that horrible bit that makes you make a decision, say, we're wrong, get out. So where does it come from? It comes from years of scars and experience. I had one year where I lost money, and I will, that's probably the best year in terms of my trading expertise. 1994, I really cocked up, and... It was good for me because I was. Right. I was you, learned, you learned from the hard times. I was an arrogant git, and I thought I was, you know, God on it. And and I and I learned I wasn't. So you had to respect the market. You never ever brag about it like I just did on saying we're right at the moment. <laughs> and you, when you, when it's turned around and it's changing, you make you say I'm. I now feel this. And do you know what? Yeah, I'll be wrong loads of times. Lots of people. Oh, you're wrong. And I've had weeks where the market's gone up thruppence, and it, I was saying it's going to go down. And and one that means they're listening, that's great. Yep. But two, 
Yeah, I, unfortunately, I can't be right the whole time because if I was, I'd be a multi-millionaire by next multi-millionaire by next Wednesday. <laughs> so I just go, boom, it's going to do this, make the money, and take up sheep farming. Yeah, that would be a sensible <laughs> thing to do. Um, <laughs> let's talk about doing grain podcast. Um, so it's early February at the moment, <laughs> and you're, you're turning over episodes far more quickly than I am. So you'll overtake me soon. But uh, you've made twenty-one or twenty-two on episodes so far. Mm. Uh, how, how did how did the podcast start? I'm 56. I uh, have never listened to a podcast until I made my first podcast and listened to my own. <laughs> Narcissism at its best. Um, the truthful answer is my my wife is is much more modern than I, and she said, you know, you really should be looking at doing something like that. You've got you you got the kind of way with you that gets people to talk, which is kind of her. Um, it's normally the beer that's made the that. <laughs> but. Um, and my younger team, they're 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 listening to podcasts. They've got podcasts, and they're kind of yeah, it's a good it's a good thing. I'm going pod pod what? Um, and obviously, anyone who's going to listen to this is listening to a podcast. So I'm, I'm, we're preaching to people under the age of fifty six. It's it's that generation that don't listen, and it's the average age of a farmer is fifty eight. So you know, specifically, how do we get older guys who are making decisions in agriculture, grain trading, to listen? Very hard to do. But it was probably the finest proof that I do listen to my wife and I do listen to my team. I, I was dead against it. Oh, really? I, I, I didn't understand it. Okay. And if you don't understand something, you know... Ugh. Yeah. Um, so I said, okay, because everyone seemed so so certain of it. Yeah, and I, I've got to confess, I'm enjoying it and I, I get it. I get it now. Yeah. It's about... it's And, and the spin-off audience is not who I thought it was going to be. And all of a sudden I realise you know, I have a responsibility within agriculture to say some very grown-up things about food yeah. and, and, and getting out to the public. The, 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 the original objective is not that, but I see that I can see we've got a role to fulfil. All farmers need to get something out there positively about production to break down this barrier with people who don't even know what the word drilling means <laughs> but uh, we, we were talking before we started recording actually about our audiences and actually knowing who they are um, guys by the way I, I, I think I know you well but please do get in touch through thinkingcountry.com um, and similarly get in touch with Dewing Grain um, dewinggrain.co.uk um, but, but in some ways so we, we're putting out content but really it's about understanding what people want to know isn't it um, mm. How, how are you going about structuring your episodes and thinking about the kinds of people who you might want to interview or your listeners might want to hear? I'm with you today and you've got nothing specifically in common with me enough in the grain trading sense. Oh, you know, cool. you, you, you know your, your farm, your arable side of your farm is contract farmed by somebody else, including the grain trading and everything is done exactly. by them. So the, the, the level of knowledge that you have is in a completely different field. That's put very nicely. Right. <laughs> Outstanding in this field. But the common ground is the podcast. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you know, I've listened to my own podcast. And then I suddenly realised I ought to listen to some other people's podcasts. So I've listened to your podcast. Not every one of them, but I've listened to a number of your podcasts. You have a, a large customer base of podcasts. My interest in you is kind of how why you started it yeah. and then how you expect to expand you've asked me the question i'm going to ask you in a minute and we reverse roles yeah, absolutely. um 
it's yeah, about. Yeah. By, the, by the way, I'll, I'll cut in there and she say that we're do, we're both we're actually recording two podcasts today. We're, we're interviewing each other, um, so do head over to During Grain um, to if you really want to hear me speak. Um, uh, in question uh, to Andrew about yeah <laughs> about whatever it is that I do. Sorry, I cut you off there. Yeah, no, absolutely. So so it's um you you flip flip the coin and lost, didn't you? So we, uh, so you interviewed me first. Yeah, no, this is about podcast, the dynamic of it. And I guess the, the, the debate I, I wanted to get to with you is about how do we, as people who are trying to help farming, the food processors, with all of this very active veganism, mm. uh, and I don't mean most, because one of your podcasts with George Young, I think it was, mm. he said he really liked vegans and he thought they were great and it's the best thing that's happened to food. And I, and I, and I actually thought, do you know what, for the first time I can, I can see a resonance in that because most vegans aren't actually placard-waving, mm. life-ruining people who are just out there for a good old scrap. There's, most of them are genuinely really thinking about what they're going to eat. Mm. Now, if we embrace that, they therefore are going to listen to good argument so how do we, that's what I'm interested in with you, yeah. how do we as podcasters get so we expand to the general public? They're not, who, they're not going to want to listen to a grain trader talking unless I start cracking really funny jokes every week. But there is a story within there. If they really want to study food, they will naturally end up on my podcast. If they, oh, we'll try this one. Yeah. Oh, we'll try that one. This, he's, he's with a miller this week. What do millers do? And, yeah. and So it's about the food story and making sure that the person that you talk to has that opportunity to to tell their piece of the story which which puts the jigsaw in places well actually uk product is much more scrutinized than some of the stuff we're importing as we face the potential of american imports as a food deal with with much lower or much less stringent or much more genetically modified or sprayed to death product or chlorinated or growth hormone we're competing on an unfair playing field and the people are going to be eating something that is not as good, not as, as correct as ours. We've got to make that point. So when the, the general probably walk into that supermarket, which is still controlling the universe, if we can't get artisan bakers everywhere, we still go to the supermarket and we will find that hopefully 60% at least of people will say, I'm not buying that stuff. Because I know it's come from there, and I know that's got trouble with it. UK, British flag means this is good. And that it's that bit I want to get into with the podcast. Well, certainly we'll chat about that over at During Grain. Um, now, I, uh, I should have told you about this before we started um, recording, but I've started a new, relatively new thing on Meet the Farmers, uh, which is called the One Minute Soapbox. It gives you it gives you really a uh, chance. No one else has actually <clears throat> jumped into something that's to do with nothing to do with farming or agriculture or food yet. But it gives you a guess a chance to speak for one minute about a subject of your choice. It could be anything at all. Can you think of something that you would like to talk about for a minute? I have a long history of running on about loads of things, so uh, yeah, I can easily talk for a minute. I think I'll try and keep it to. Um, um, why women are never, never wrong? No, I don't. Well, I dare do that. Uh, I think what I will do is uh, I will I will get on the the bandwagon of what I've already talked about to a large degree, which is which is um, yeah supermarkets and 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 food and the general public and and yes 
So Super. Okay. Start running on about that. Andrew Dewing, you have one minute starting now. Right. It is my my hopes and dreams that the general public in the UK will wander into a supermarket and go, oh, good grief, the, f- the fresh fish counter's closed and so's the bakery. They just supri- supply stuff in plastic bags now. Do you know, I really like fresh bread. I'm going to go to a central place in the middle of my market town and in there is this new bakery that's set up where they've got in the back a mill that's been been invented that you can do small batches of flour from a locally produced farmer who's ticks all of the boxes in terms of doing it really either organically or phenomenally structured correctly so the pesticides and nothing's on it that shouldn't be there and it's the right spec so they can get their their specific food needs in a local place that also has the availability of milk that's from a local dairy also has the availability of vegetables all from local farmers and we sit there as that as our choice Instead of going into the... Is that the end of the minute? That's the end. That was really good. <laughs> so I've already said it takes me a while to get each episode up. Um, and you'll, have, you'll, have, you'll have published a few in that time. So before, by, the time the, by the time this one comes out. <laughs> that is um, quite funny. That is quite funny. Um, what, what's coming up in your next few episodes? Um, we, we've got we've a very funny point that's made. You ask for feedback. You get feedback that you like. It's great. You get feedback you don't really like. You, you, okay, and then you get feedback that that says, "Why don't you have a normal farmer on there?" <laughs> okay, tell, tell me who a normal farmer is. Exactly, exactly. who is a normal farmer? <laughs> okay, I'm not. Oh, he must be him. Um, it's like that Life of Brian clip when when yeah. he's standing at the window and he goes, oh, "Well, you're all different." I'm not. <laughs> Funniest moment. But so, um, who is a normal Great farmer? Fun. Yeah, I, I that. That's one of them. Um, I've got a miller. We're going to line up. We've got a we've got a friendly miller. We've got two friendly millers. But uh, D- David Wright, he's we've not got the appointment stitched yet. But he's he's got to come on because he makes me laugh. I famously say to Norfolk growers, "Don't grow milling wheat; it's a waste of time." And that's the first time I met him in London. It was just so funny. <laughs> How can you do that? I, just, I totally can because you are you know you 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 dodgy claim-taking people and, and we, we have a great relationship he comes to Norfolk most weekends and, and so David Wright I've got a miller on there we've got to get some molsters on there which we've got lined up um, but we're kind of trying to intersperse it with, with farmers and so far we've had guys who've diversified because that subliminal message about you, you can do it that, that's very big with us come on boys you know turn that shed into something or you know grow pumpkins and sell them or, or have a maize maize or whatever you're going to do have, you can have the balls. Um, but yeah, I'm now searching for a normal farmer. <laughs> um, Please tell me when you find one. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> it, isn't it? Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's trying to intersperse the trade, trying to intersperse the diversification, trying to intersperse normal farmers, and, and trying to, to, at the same time, um, build confidence of, of, of farmers as my primary subject, with my subliminal knowledge that the, lots of the UK grain trade are now listening to yeah. our podcast, which is really strange because I kind of can't help cracking jokes about them. <laughs> and then um, and then you get the taxi driver from um, Norwich who said, Hello, mate, 
love your podcast. I said, oh, Liam, there's a guy who used to play rugby at the rugby club. I went, right. I said, well, why? I love it, dear. I really like it. I've got all my mates listening to it. <laughs> why? He said, because it's, you know, it's interesting. He said, it's about a subject that we all, we know all these farmer boys and don't, and don't know anything about them at all. So, That's yeah, it's the, the Taxi Drivers of Norwich Club. Super. <laughs> well, if you want anyone to spread news, it's definitely through that. So, Andrew, how do uh, listeners of the Meet the Farmers podcast, how do my listeners find out more about Dewing Grain and your podcast? Yeah, yeah, we're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, at Doing Grain, and we are uh, www.doinggrain.co.uk forward slash podcast. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Andrew. This, is, this has generally been one of my most enjoyable recordings so far. Well, it's, so, it's, th- th- it's, thank you so much for coming all the way down here. My absolute pleasure. It was great staying in Suffolk last night, and it's great to come to the driest part of the country <laughs> where, in fact, it's raining. So, no, it's been a pleasure, Ben. Thank you. Andrew Dewing of the Dewing Grain Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Meet the Farmers. I've been your host, Ben Eagle. You can listen to the last 10 previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes and all previous episodes on thinkingcountry.com. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Benji underscore Eagle. And please do get in touch by email or otherwise. You can find my details at thinkingcountry.com. Next time, I'll be speaking to Spencer Christie. I hope you can join me for that. Have a great day in the meantime, and I'll catch you soon on Meet the Farmers.